You're listening to Rockland Community Church, connecting all generations to Jesus. Well, this is a uh, this is a time of year where there is uh, some newness for uh, really our, our culture, I guess. Some people more than others. Um, you've got uh, you know families with kids are going to school, and some are having their their first day of maybe first day of school ever, first day of preschool, first day of kindergarten, first day of elementary, first day of middle school, first day of high school. Some are, are driving their oldest daughter to college in a few days, and uh, you got this newness happening. And, um, and, and if, if that's not your life stage, maybe it's, it's you're, you're working with people who, you know, that, that's kind of what's happening in their life. And so you can sort of have that summer dip, and now the fall's coming. And so it's like, all right, we're kind of getting back in the groove of things. And this is probably, except for maybe New Year's, this is probably um, the second time of the year, this season for different people, where um, there is this kind of turning of a page. Even, even people who are uh, maybe retired now are like, good, now, now they're not traveling, so Southwest drops their airfare, and now you're off to travel, and you're, you're, the trip you've been putting off, you know, whatever it is, there's just something um, kind of new about this time, and for our teachers and volunteers and things um, at schools, this is just a, a time of newness and that page turning, and, and every time that I see um, a page turn in my life, or as I just talk with people about their lives and, and new beginnings and just kind of these little pivot points in their life. Um, two things can show up if we're not careful. One is regret and one is worry. One is regret and one is worry. Regret is the, um, you know, the parents sending their, their kid off to school and uh, the first time and the little kid just wondering like, oh, did I... Did I do enough? Did I spend all the time with her that I, that I should have? And, and you know, our lives will never be the same. And did I do it right? Did I get her ready? Does she know what she needs to know? Is she socially ready? Is she, you know, all those different things. There can be regret of looking back and going, man, I wish I'd done more. That can happen. That's the what ifs. That's the looking back about what if I had just done this? Then there's also the, the, the what ifs, the worry, the looking forward. You know, this could be somebody who's been working their whole life and now retirement is coming. And he's known he's going to retire. He's seen a bunch of other people do this. He can look at the bank account and see, we're set. I'm, I'm good for my retirement. Like all those things. But at the same time, he might be going, but all I've done, I've been a working man for 40 years of my life. And so what is this actually going to be like? And so there can just be, if we're not careful, we can just have anxiety that just comes up, worry about the future, these unanswered questions that we have. And... Um, uh, this week, we're going to hit the first one a little bit. Next week, we're going to talk more about that, that future and what the scripture teaches. And, and my hope, by the way, is not to dredge all this up and you just leave going, well, that's, that stinks. I have more worry than I did when I walked in. I have more regrets than I did when I walked in. My hope is that you can see the hope of the gospel in it and we can be, have those things alleviated in our lives. Next week, we'll hit worry. That's the end of it. That's chapter three and, or verse three and following. He's like a tree planted by streams of water. This does not describe somebody with anxiety. The tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in seasons and its leaf does not wither. All he does, and all he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, they're like chaff that the wind drives away. The wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So that'll be next week. Let's talk a little bit about regret this week. And really, regret and worry, have, they have at least three things in common. Uh, number one, let's just be blunt. Both of them are futile. Both of them are futile. 
looking back at the past. Now, maybe it's, boy, I messed up in a relationship and so I can go make amends and maybe that'll help. But for the most part, the stuff that we're worried about, the stuff that we go, oh, if only I had done that more, if only I had saved more money when I was younger, whatever it might be, like to just dwell on that and to have that regret doesn't do any good. And then most of the time, the worries that we have in the future, sometimes we can do some things to help you know, mitigate the chance, that, minimize the chance that it's actually going to happen, but that's usually not the stuff that people worry about. It's usually stuff that at some point you have to go, yeah, but that's out of my control. And so really, I just look, and the first thing is both of these are futile. The, the past what-ifs, what if I had done this better? The future what-ifs, what if this were to happen? Um, there, there's not a lot of good value that comes from hanging on to those two things. And the second thing that they have in common is this. Neither one of these is for the Christian. They are for Christ. Neither one of these, regret and worry, are not for the Christian. They are for Christ. I'll say it bluntly like this. If you are in Jesus Christ, your past, the things that you regret, are forgiven in the blood of Jesus Christ. He takes our regret, our guilt, our shame, and he died and paid a price for it. We take our regret to the foot of the cross and we leave it there. It is for Christ. We are not made to walk around bearing this sorrow and this anxiety for, oh, if only I had. And then the things, if Christ has forgiven our past, the other thing he does is he holds the future. He holds the future perfectly. You and I, if you're like me, I wanna grip the future and I wanna plan it and I'd like to micromanage every little nuance of what's gonna happen and I'm still in my 40s and I'm already like, well, I can't do that. Like, I already know that that's an impossibility. And so the way the Christian operates is to say, my regrets in my past, the things where I just blew it, those are forgiven completely at the foot of the cross, and the things that are in the future are in the hands of God, and I cannot contain them in my hands. That's where we start with all this. Thirdly, um, <clears throat> regret and worry both have the same answer. And when I tell you the answer, you might go, does it really? Yes, they do. And here's what it is. The answer for regret and worry is a Bible-saturated mind. Now, there's more to it than just this. So this isn't just like, just do this, and then you're gonna leave, and we'll never. I'm not saying that. But I'm saying the answer to it is to have a Bible-saturated mind. And we live in a time where um, you know, biblical, biblical literacy is very, very low. Um, there's some that have just kind of never really understood much. And so we've just sort of learned how to, how to coast in our lives with the amount of knowledge that we have. And I realize I'm talking to a bunch of people sitting here listening to a Bible teaching right now. I understand the irony of what I'm saying. Um, but a Bible-saturated mind, I hope that image can communicate what I'm trying to communicate here today because I think that's what this is talking about, but it's gonna, it'll take just a minute to get there. But Psalm 1-1, blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, and then it says, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So this is, and you can see I highlighted it here, this is called parallelism in Hebrew poetry, sometimes called synonymous Hebrew parallelism, or synonymous parallelism, because you can see it looks as though he's kind of saying the same thing three different times, to emphasize the point. Blessed is the man who doesn't um, walk in the council, stand in the way of, sit in the seat of the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers. Like you can see, he seems to be saying kind of the same thing. 
Now, um, for the sake of time, I'm just gonna try and clarify what this is saying. Um, when you see those words, the wicked, the sinners, and the scoffers, um, let me just tell you what the Bible means when it says this, which is really what he's talking about here is those who, in their day, didn't know God. These wouldn't be the Israelites that followed God and worshiped God. These were, um, these were the, the nations, the Gentiles, that didn't know and follow God. Like, this is a shorthand way. Today, we might just say these are non-Christians. These are people who are not converted, These are people who don't know the Lord yet. And you can see what he says, the parallelism is, one is you have have the unconverted and then you have walking and then you have kind of a standing, like noticing, like taking some interest and then it progresses to sit. So you see what the psalmist is saying. He's talking about, in fact, because it says blessed is the man and it opens up the Psalter, some think this is actually written to the king himself. But that's who this is for, and they're telling him, this, when you're the king, this is how you operate. But this is, obviously, this is um, enough for everybody here. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, walk by, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. Now, um, because of the way it's phrased, another clarification would just be, are you telling me that Christians then should not be around non-Christians? Is that what this thing is saying? And you probably know the answer is, of course not. That's not what it's saying. When it talks about standing in the way of them, it's not like in their path in their way, but it really means, um, it really means a lifestyle choice. Like my life is going to look like them. I'm gonna walk by and take notice and think it's interesting. Then I will stand and then I will sit and just live as a converted Christian like somebody who's not a Christian. That's what he's saying here. And he says, if you want the blessing of God, this is not how you live your life. And I'll give the positive side to it in just a minute. But this is, a, this is the idea of taking on their lifestyle. Or you could just think Jesus walked with sinners, but he didn't become like them. Jesus walked with them to minister to them. We should live differently. If we go and just take on the lifestyle of those who who don't know the Lord Jesus, that should be a huge disconnect in our minds. It's the way, the lifestyle of those who are not Christians. So I'll give you a a, a quick check and then I'll give you a way to apply this. Um, A check to have is you might just like if you're in the office and you're going, my life is basically like all the unconverted people who are around me. I desire the same things that they desire. I I long for that promotion because I think it'll fill me. I want that money because it'll fulfill me. Those kinds of things. And you're going, everybody else does it that way. That should just be a check to say, maybe I have morphed my life to become like them, to think how they think. That's what he's speaking against here. Or I think of one, and I know this is a challenge, but parents, man, we look around, and I, I just look, and I see the busyness that's in our culture today, the, um, the uh, sacrificing our kids on the altar of, of sports and drama and music and, ah, and all the different things, and I get it. I got three kids, and it's just, you can have stuff for your kids constantly, and that's what the world does, and when a parent starts to just say, we'll just do the exact same thing, there should be a check in our spirit to go, it feels like we should be different. We have different values than those who don't know Christ. Or I talked to a a guy recently who, who I think he was joking. He wasn't, he's, well, I don't don't know him well. I don't think he was a Christian. If you'd been hearing our conversation, you'd go, I don't think this guy's a Christian, but we'll just leave it at that. And, um, And he was talking about retirement and he goes, finally, I'm gonna get to retire and I can just be selfish. And I thought, that was an interesting statement. And I sort of just laughed, you know. I was like, oh, I get it. But I thought, I wonder if, 
I wonder if there's actually some truth to that of like, I've just been working and working and working my whole life and now my life gets to just revolve around me. And I thought, that is not how a Christian should think about retirement, that now I get a period of selfishness in my life. That's not how we should think. So let me make this real tangible. There was a guy, he was, this, was, this was 15, 20 years ago, something like that, and he had about six or eight young men that were with him, and I, I think I, I, have a, I know exactly where we were. I don't even remember why we were all there, but he was like teaching us. Uh, this is back when we lived in Texas, and um, this guy was, uh, he was probably 80 or so at the time. Oh, he was 80, because he mentioned it. He was 80, and um, he had just retired, and he was an oil and gas guy, and um, and uh, he had us together and was chatting with us. And he told this story about uh, he had been in oil and gas. He had made a ton of money and had been looking for some kind of promotion. And uh, it had been his life's obsession to get this particular promotion. And then he was uh, five or so years away from maybe retiring. And he got the promotion. And everybody knew that he wanted the promotion. His wife knew he wanted the promotion. And he got the promotion. And he said, I went and I, they introduced me. They all applauded. And I went back and I sat in my office and I sat behind my desk and I wept. Because I realized my whole life had been geared towards getting in that chair. And as soon as I sat down, I thought, empty. So you got about six or eight young guys sitting there listening like, you know, What'd you do? And so he had one day, he said in his office, uh, I don't know if it was depression or not, but he said, I just couldn't work. I was just sitting there. I just could not do a thing. And so I finally said, I have to do something. I'm gonna get one thing done today. And so he got up to go talk to the, his colleague or something in the next office and they had the meeting and he said, I just totally went through the motions. And then he noticed on his desk, and I don't remember what it was, but some, some symbol or something of this man's uh, Judaism. He's He's Jewish. And so he saw something like a, I don't know what it was, something that indicated that he was Jewish and it was pretty prominent out on his desk. And he looked at it and just thought, I didn't think you were supposed to be able to do that. But then he thought, well, if he can do that, I can do that. And so uh, he said, uh, he went back and he said, I bought a Bible and I just stuck it on my desk right there in his office, stuck it on his desk. And he's like, they may tell me to move it, but then they got to tell that guy to move it and they ain't going to tell that guy to move it. So I'm going to put this here on my desk. So he put a Bible on his desk. And then he said he had a meeting and the, a, guy, a young man came in and was talking to him and just noticed that, oh, you have a Bible on your desk and got in a conversation. And he just said the fog was just lifted and everything changed for him. And he realized why he was there. He realized why he got the promotion. And so then it became a game. And he said, I didn't know if they were getting annoyed that I had my Bible. And he said, so I wanted to check. So he, he kept getting, this sounds a little obnoxious. He kept buying bigger Bibles. Like he wanted to, so, so he's describing, he's like, so then I got these big Bibles and we're like, there's not a Bible that big, man. I don't know what you're doing with that. But, it, what he, but he was, he's like, it was huge. And he's like, I had these latches and you'd have to like pull it back. And he's like, it was right there. It was the biggest thing on my desk. And so he had these Bibles and then he had this little thing where he had a piece of paper in his drawer with all of his direct reports and then everybody that reported to them. And he just wanted every single one of them to notice that he had a Bible on his desk. And so he, he was telling us, and he, he said they would come in and somebody would just kind of be talking and talking and just sort of look down and notice the Bible, and he would go, uh-huh, just kind of check them off to see that they noticed it. And he said, I had conversation after conversation after conversation. He said, I realized I was a missionary. I wasn't the VP or whatever he was. I was the missionary there to reach people. 
And so he had, he said he got to have conversations and conversations. He said some people would come in and go, what is that gargantuan book on your desk? And he'd say, it's the Bible. And they would go, oh, do you mind approving my spending report? And he'd go, okay, they don't want to talk about it. But he would go, check, they know. And he told stories and some of those guys that didn't want anything to do with it, when you know, life kind of fell out, they would come back to him. And he was just this, like the pastor of the organization basically is what he did. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, his life had meaning. And he realized why he was there. And so one of the things he did is um, he had a prayer that he would say. He said, I got up every day. I got there, I think it was 10 minutes earlier than I used to get there. And so he'd get up earlier. He'd get there. He would pray. He said, I remember, he's like, even when I was 80, I would get down. I would get down on my knees behind my desk, and I would hope that people would see me as I was there praying. And he'd have this gargantuan Bible out on his desk, and he would pray and pray and pray, and he would read it. He read my utmost for his highest, this great devotional. And then he had a prayer, and he said, this is my prayer that I said every day. And I think I recreated it about as closely as I can, because there were three elements. Every morning, he would say, God, help me love you more today than I did yesterday. Help me know more about you today than I did yesterday. He was big into like knowledge and history and stuff. And then he said, remind me all day that I am not here to become like them, but to help them become like you. That's the call of the Christian. I'm not here just to learn about you so I can just become more like you and then therefore fit in with you. I want to learn about you. I want to get to know you because I want to minister to you and I want to tell you the way of God Almighty. And I'm just going to tell you, you have that shift in your neighborhood, in your family, in your work, in whatever it is. And all of a sudden, a list of regrets that you'll have someday starts to drop. Living for him, knowing the word of God and doing what it says don't walk, stand, sit with the wicked sinners and the scoffers. And it says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. This guy, the opposite of doing that is to delight in the word of God. And it's so odd to think delight in law because we're, we're, we're man, listen, we're, we're Westerners. We're, we're Americans. I'm gonna delight in some other kind of regulation that is now placed on me. And he's saying, I delight in what you have spoken to me. I delight in what you have said. On his law, he meditates day and night. I picture the, uh, there was a young couple and uh, we were, I was talking to both of them and then she left and, and we were still talking to him for a little bit and, and I, he just didn't seem like he was with me. And I go, what are you thinking about right now? And he goes, her. Okay, that's really sweet. She's not here to hear that so you didn't get any points or anything. But it was, he was just like, I just, I just, I love her and I miss her and she just left and so I'm just thinking about her. And that's like what the psalmist is doing right here of just going, I just, I love God. I love what he has revealed through his word and so my mind just naturally goes there and I delight thinking about what he has said. Amen. So how does a Bible-saturated mind help us in our regret? How does a Bible-saturated mind help us in our regret. Um, there's some that say, you know, if, if you just memorize a ton and then when a situation comes up, you can just sort of pull that scripture out. And I, I think there's some truth to that. Um, I do think, you know, if you're, if you're going, I'm a parent and I'm trying to figure out how to have a conversation with social media with my kids and you get out your concordance and you start looking for social media, you're not gonna find it. 
And so sometimes it is, it's, it, you can know a ton of scripture and, it's, and it is difficult to maybe pull out just the right one at just the right time. But what I have noticed is um, if I am just walking with the Lord and just saturating my mind with this, all of a sudden, remarkably, the things that are going on in my life, I can start to read this and I can start to think, I never thought that that really applied to what I'm actually walking through right now. When you spend time consistently knowing and understanding this book, when you are walking through something in life and then you're walking with God in his word, you'll be amazed the overlap that you start to have. And so what happens is, as you are living your life, it may not talk about, you know, what do I do with my kids with social media, but what it might do is it might remind you over and over that as a parent, your job is to disciple your child. Your job is not just let's make sure they have fun or let's make sure they're in all the things, but to help disciple them that they would know and to love the Lord. And you start seeing that over and over and over. And all of a sudden, the conversations about social media, you've got a different filter that you're using as you're having those conversations. Or I think of, I think of this, uh, this guy that shared with those, uh, those young men. And um, if he had had a filter of just saturating his mind with the word of God, which he did later in life, if he had saturated his mind with the word of God, I wonder if he would have at some point just realized, I am, I am chasing money. I'm chasing this promotion. I'm chasing stuff. And I keep seeing over and over and over how empty that actually is. The way I said it is this. Today's following of the world will be tomorrow's regret. Today's following the world will be tomorrow's regret. So listen, if you have something right now as you are looking forward and you're still making this sort of footprints of your life, so to speak, and you are doing it walking in the word of God, living as God would have you, you will look back at those footprints and there will be far fewer that are just stricken with regret. That's one of the things the word of God can do for you. So I did some math. I'll give you one example. And I'm in, a, I'm in parent mode, so I'm gonna give you an example. Let's say a kid gets a phone when they are in sixth grade, which my daughter that was up here, she got her phone when she was uh, 14, and she was, I think, the last of her friends to get one, like dead last of her friends to get one. All right, so let's say sixth grade to high school. Let's just say they get a phone, and they spend two hours a day, which in this day and age is probably conservative if you look at a high schooler's screen time on their phone, okay? Let's say they spend two hours a day on the phone. Or you could say screens like, uh, and, I, and I'm saying just like pointless stuff, not like I'm emailing or I'm setting something up for school, looking at grades or studying or reading my Bible. I'm talking about like just pointless stuff, scrolling. That's a conservative number, by the way, for the majority of our culture. I started doing math and started figuring, okay, if they sleep this many hours a night and if they just have a phone from sixth grade to 12th grade, how many hours will they have spent on their phone by the time they graduate scrolling and looking at pointless things? 10 months. 10 months. As a parent right now with kids, I'm not gonna look back and go, man, have I, have I been too lax? Have I been too loose? I'm gonna go, that's in the past, Christ has forgiven it. I wanna look forward for a minute and go, I can actually do something about this. I can have those conversations and if I can help shape their minds so they can see that in a more healthy way, then all of a sudden I'm gonna get to the end and I'm gonna be launching them to college and be going, I have fewer regrets. And wasted 10 months playing video games and Fortnite and all that kind of stuff. 
If we live for Christ now, then we won't, then um, today's following the world will be tomorrow's regret. The other thing I would say about how does a Bible-saturated mind, how does that um, help us with regret, and this is, I mean this very personally, very pastorally for many of you, I've had a lot of conversations. The gospel message of the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus Christ washing over you over and over and over, that is the big message of this book, is God's rescue plan for you and for me, his rescue plan for the world, his love for us, demonstrated in Christ Jesus, dying at the cross, rising victoriously over sin, Satan, and death, that is the message that permeates the Bible. And here's what I found. The more I just read that over and over and over, the more I actually start to believe it. And so listen, for some of you that may be living with regret, you just start reading the Bible over and over and over. And what you start to realize is there are people who were like um, premeditated, way more wicked than anything I've ever done in my life. Like kings that have led God's people astray and spit in the face of God in the Old Testament. And you see God come in and rescue them and forgive them. You see Paul going around killing Christians and now he's written most of our New Testament. And you start looking and you can start to go, if God can forgive them, he really can forgive me. His forgiveness is no joke, it's for real. I also wanted to mention that regret is an inadequate penance. I think oftentimes what, what we think is um, I, I should have regret, I should have remorse, I should have sorrow, I should feel bad because I messed up and so somehow that is going to pay the price for what I did and it never will. But Christ did. So as Christians, we receive that. Only the gospel can say what's past is past. This is really what makes Christianity unique. You can't just forgive yourself, let time hear all wounds. It'll just linger and linger and linger, but you can bring it to the foot of the cross. Amen. There was a, um, an Englishman who has my new favorite name. Ebenezer Wooten is his name. Ebenezer Wooten, and he was an evangelist, and he had just concluded a preaching service out in the village square, and the crowd all had uh, dispersed at this point, and he was going, and he was loading his equipment back in the car, and a young man came up to him and said, Mr. Wooten, what must I do to be saved? Now, you'd think this is an evangelist's dream. He's just done the whole thing, and then he's loading the car, and the guy comes up and goes, what must I do to be saved? And it says, sensing that the fellow was trusting his own righteousness, Wooten answered a rather unconcerned way. He said, it's too late. And the man said, oh, please don't say that. Please don't say that. What do I have to do to be saved? But this evangelist said, it's too late. It's too late. It's too late. Then he looked the young man in the eye and he said, you want to know what you have to do to be saved what you have to do to be forgiven. And I tell you, it's too late now or any other time. The work of salvation is done, completed, and finished. It was finished on the cross. And then he said, what I'll say to you today, which is it's not our job to carry regret, to think we're paying some price that eventually is gonna make amends for what we've done in the past. The price has been paid by Jesus Christ and we simply receive that by faith in him.